2: Good evening from the White House in Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Our meeting at Berlin was the first meeting of the great allies since the victory was won in Europe. Naturally, our thoughts now turn to the day of victory in Japan. The British, Chinese, and United States governments have given the Japanese people adequate warning of what is in store for them. We have laid down the general terms on which they can surrender. Our warning went unheeded. Our terms were rejected. Since then, the Japanese have seen what our atomic bomb can do. They can foresee what it will do in the future. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. That was because we wished in the first attack to avoid, insofar as possible the killing of civilians. But that attack is only a warning of things to come. If Japan does not surrender, bombs will have to be dropped on her war industries, and unfortunately, thousands of civilian lives will be lost. I urge Japanese civilians to leave industrial cities immediately and save themselves from destruction. I realize the tragic significance of the atomic bomb. Its production and its use were not lightly undertaken by this government, but we knew that our enemies were on the search for it. We know now how close they were to finding it, and we knew the disaster which would come to this nation and to all peace-loving nations, to all civilization, if they had found it first. That is why we felt compelled to undertake the long and uncertain and costly labor of discovery and production. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. Having found the bomb, we have used it. We have used it against those who attack us without warning at Pearl Harbor. Against those who have starved and beaten and executed American prisoners of war. Against those who have abandoned all pretense of obeying international laws of warfare. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. Only a Japanese surrender will stop us. The three great powers are now more closely than ever bound together in determination to achieve that kind of peace. From Tehran and the Crimea, from San Francisco and Berlin, We shall continue to march together to a lasting peace and a happy world.
0: Yeah, well, John Dower um, um, wrote a a book about uh, that fact, just what you were talking about, that there were atrocities on both sides, you know. And history is always written, almost always written from a nationalistic point of view. No. And so when we write our history or, or when our journalists talk about World War II, it's always the Japanese cruelties, the Bataan Death March and so on, which is true, of course. But what they omit, of course, is, you know, our cruelties and our atrocities. And uh, so, uh, you know, John Dower wrote a book called War Without Mercy, uh, which deals with that and, and redresses that balance. Well, what I, in fact, what began my thinking, rethinking about war was uh, right after the war when I read John Hersey's Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. And John Hersey had gone to Hiroshima uh, after the bombing and he interviewed the people who were the victims of that bombing and who were still alive. Uh, And his account of it was so personal so human, so harrowing, that I, who had accepted the bombing of Hiroshima when it happened, you know, well, I don't have to go to the Pacific now. The war is over. And I didn't think about the human consequences of that bombing. And that made me rethink my own missions and realize that I had never understood the human consequences of the bombing missions that I was flying. I didn't realize that I was bombing really indiscriminately and all this talk about which they still you know talk about you know precision bombing uh, you know accurate bombing we only bomb military targets yeah, It was yeah. all nonsense yeah yeah it was nonsense then and it's nonsense yeah, they now. started they started saying that in those days because of what was then a, a new device the Norden bombsite <laughs> that's right and uh, actually we were engaging as were the british in area bombing to a large extent that, you know, when you talk about Hiroshima, there are people who can say, and it's not my purpose to get into that discussion here, mm. but but merely to point out that there are people who say that 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 the atomic bombings may have saved, you know, millions of lives on both sides. Yeah. But be that as it may, you participated in the bombing which in at, of Royan. Mm. Afterwards, you could find no legitimate excuse for that bombing at all, and it took hundreds, as I understand it, of uh, Allied Fr- French lives on the ground. Yes. Uh, I don't want to bypass Hiroshima, okay? Okay. <laughs> yeah, because it is still one of the great myths in American culture that we saved lives by bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we did not. And I, I've done a lot of research on that, and the, the most elaborate research job on that done by Gar Alperovitz and a crew of scholars makes it clear we did not save lives. Japan, Japanese were about to surrender. We killed several hundred thousand people unnecessarily. And uh, I want to say something else about that, which goes not only to Hiroshima, but to bombing in general, I think. And I, I would ask people who say we had to do it in order to save lives. I would say, well, uh, if it was in August 1945... And you knew that we could end the war with Japan more quickly because that's what it was about, ending it more quickly. Not ending it because we knew it would end and the Japanese were on their way to to defeat, but ending it more quickly by dropping a bomb. Would you be willing to kill 100,000 American children to end the war more quickly? Well, the answer to that is obvious. Nobody would say yes. But you're willing to kill 100,000 Japanese children in order to end the war more quickly? What does that mean? What does that say about the way we think about other people? What does that say about war? What does it say about our willingness to kill other people because their lives are not as important as ours? Okay, I I know you didn't want to get into Hiroshima, but, uh, but I couldn't let that go because it's such an important myth in American culture.
1: Hey everybody this is prof cj your renaissance man in the new dark age back with another installment of the dangerous history podcast this is going to be episode 72 of the dangerous history podcast and since this month is the 70th anniversary of the atomic bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki this will be our topic for this episode but before we start digging into this topic i just want to give a few Patreon shout-outs to Neil and also to Bjorn, who are, respectively, my second and third Patreon patrons. So thank you both very much, Neil and Bjorn, for stepping up and being patrons of the Dangerous History Podcast. And I do want to announce for all the listeners that I'm going to be starting to put occasional bonus episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast on my Patreon account soon and these will be accessible only to those who are patrons of the show and i'm planning on doing one about every four to six weeks or so and putting it there where it will only be uh, available to those who are signed up to donate per episode to this show via patreon so check it out at patreon.com slash prof cj i'll also put links to it in the show notes for this episode and of course there's links to it on my donate page as well sign up as a patron on Patreon for the Dangerous History Podcast for as little as a buck per episode. Though, of course, please feel free to do more. Two bucks, three bucks, five bucks, hundred bucks, whatever, if you're uh, so inclined and able to afford it. And um, I'll give you a shout out by name on the next episode after you sign up as a patron. And in addition to that, like I said, you'll be able to access these bonus episodes that I'm going to start putting together that will be there again just for patrons of the show. Now, on to today's topic, the atomic bombing of two Japanese cities at the end of World War II. I talked about this subject a bit in very broad brush type terms back in episode number 49, which, if you'll recall, was historical lies by omission. But in light of the 70th anniversary this month, I want to discuss these in a lot more detail. You've probably noticed it's been, I don't know, a week and a half, probably just shy of two weeks since I did my last... Dangerous history podcast episode. And you might be wondering, you know, what gives? Well, the answer is nothing seriously bad happened to me. No horrible disaster befell me. But in working on this episode to cover the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I ran into two different problems. First, for a while, as I was researching this further and I researched this more than I ever had before in terms of detail for this episode. While, while I was really getting into the research for this for a while, I was quite slowed down and I have to be honest with you, why I was being slowed down, not out of laziness or anything like that. It was just because the subject is so depressing. It is such a depressing subject to dig into the details of on, on like every level, aside from, you know, the obvious human carnage, but everything about it. All the, the poor decisions, the missed opportunities, all the things, and then, of course, the lies after the fact to try and whitewash the entire thing and, and the reasons for it and so on. It is a depressing subject, and that actually did slow me down for a while on my research. Not that I wasn't putting in the time, but man, I was just, it was drudgery because of that. But eventually, somewhere along the way, I got into a place of, I guess, you know, enough inertia or critical mass or whatever that I started gunning through the research in my usual pace. And then once that started happening, I thought, all right, I'm going to get this done soon. And then the problem became I kept digging and digging and I ran into the problem of, you know, just constantly digging up new stuff and and the thing kept expanding and expanding my pages of notes kept expanding and expanding and so on so then i ran into into that problem so um i probably could have done even more research and made this thing even longer but at some point you got to just you know cut it off and say all right i'm i'm going to present what i've got at this point and it may not be absolutely everything but it damn sure is going to be a lot so that's what i'm doing here and before i start getting into this whole issue and all the, the narrative and the questions about it and so on. I want to tell a story. I can't remember, honestly, if I've yet related this on my podcast or any of the times I've been a guest on anyone else's podcast. I kind of feel like I have, but I couldn't recall where. I went and listened to a few spots where I thought I might have mentioned it and it wasn't there, so I don't know. So I apologize if you're hearing this story for the second time, but I think it's a very interesting story. Before I got the job that I currently have, which is a full time college teaching job, I was an adjunct for a while and I was adjuncting in two different colleges, both of which were fairly nice, prestigious, you know, not not like top of the list, but but pretty well respected, solid um, private colleges, both of which were quite happy to hire me as an adjunct, but would not even look at my resume for any full time work because I don't have a Ph.D., and during the time that I was doing this, uh these two colleges were about an hour or so away from each other, and I would drive to one and teach two classes in the morning, and then I would drive back to the other one uh, and teach two classes in the afternoon. And the, the college that I taught at in the afternoon was closer to where I lived at the time. So I'd do an hour commute in the morning, teach two classes, do an hour commute back, teach two more classes in the afternoon. And in the college that I did my morning classes at, there were a very high number of international students, of students that, whether they were currently U.S. citizens or not, were were people who were born and raised in other countries. And it was really diverse, too. Really diverse. Um, just trying to recall the, the students. And these are just the ones that I know where they were from because, because they mentioned it to me in conversation or whatever. I remember very much, uh, very, very distinctly. I had a student who was, uh, Scottish. I had a student who was Brazilian. I had a student who was from one of the Balkan countries. One of the ones that had, you know, horrible stuff happen in the 90s. I forget which one though. I honestly, um, but she was from one of those places. I had a student who was originally from Ukraine and I had a student who was originally from Iran and no, he was actually a a very nice guy and uh, was not a crazy terrorist and never tried to kill me, not even once. Um, He was actually a guy who came over to this country as a young man because he didn't want to be in Iran anymore Um, because, you know, he's a normal, nice guy and didn't want to live there. Not to mention, you know, their economy is shit. But anyway, and and there are others I'm probably forgetting, too. But I mean, diverse classes where out of a class of 30 students, maybe 10 of them would be, you know, from some other country. And that was cool, especially because what I was teaching at that school at the time was world history, modern world history in particular, the last uh, two centuries or so. Roughly, um, I think I started it with the the fall of Napoleon and then basically did, you know, 200 years, roughly would have been 100 and. 80-something at that time. But anyway, we got to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in the courses I had at another school, which was also, you know, a small private college, but for whatever reason just didn't have as many students from other countries, there it was hard to really get any back-and-forth discussion going about the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the the students who were American were just, you know, open and shut, done deal, nothing to see here, no questions. It was absolutely necessary and absolutely justified. And not only was it some sort of necessary evil, but in fact, the atomic bombings were a positive good. By contrast, at the other school where I had so many students from other parts of the world, it was like all of a sudden they they were jumping right in right and as we had a a very good class discussion you know the american students even in that in that school were still initially just oh yeah open and shut it was a good thing it was the right thing that's it um but but the foreign students you know to their credit bravely piped up and raised different objections and so on and what quickly became clear as we we as a class had More discussion about this was that the American students, those who had been born, raised and attended school in the United States, had been just completely brainwashed to not even be capable of questioning, to be like scared to even question the official American narrative of nothing to see here. Move along. It was all good. Don't ask any questions. If you ask any questions, you hate America and you're probably a commie Nazi Muslim who loves the Japanese and thinks they were the good guys in World War II, right? And it it quickly became clear that my international students, regardless of which of the many countries they were from, they happened to be from, they were much more seeing multiple sides. And in fact, some of them were were very much, oh, it's absolutely wrong. Doesn't matter what else the Japanese government, the Japanese military may have done, that incinerating masses of non-combatants with nuclear weapons is wrong. Like, there's nothing to justify that, was what um, several of my foreign-born students flat out said. And it was very clear that they had simply been given a more maybe more complete or well-rounded view of the whole thing some of them still kind of were moderate on the issue they weren't all gung-ho against it but they were at least much more aware that there was at least a strong case to be made critical of the whole thing whereas the americans had been raised in almost an orwellian fashion to even see any beginnings in their minds of questioning the bombings as some sort of thought crime to be mentally snuffed out immediately as soon as it pops in Well, anyway, it's very interesting, and I wonder how many Americans today would have that same very simplistic, naive, childish view of things if they actually knew a lot more of the facts of the whole thing. So right now, I just want to share with you some quotes from some interesting people raising questions or misgivings or criticisms about these atomic bombings. First, quote, I voiced my grave misgivings, first on the basis of my belief that Japan was already defeated and that dropping of the bomb was completely unnecessary, and secondly, because I thought that our country should avoid shocking world opinion by the use of a weapon whose employment was, I thought, no longer mandatory as a measure to save American lives, end quote. Well, was that some left-wing, anti-war socialist-leaning radical within the Truman administration? No, that was actually five-star General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander. Next quote. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender. The use of this barbarous weapon at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan in being the first to use it we adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the dark ages i was not taught to make war in that fashion end quote. and that was admiral william d leahy who was then chairman of the joint chief of staff next one quote, in principle the extermination camps where the Nazis incinerated over six million helpless Jews were no different from the urban crematoriums our Air Force improvised in its attacks by Napalm on Tokyo. Our aims were different, but our methods were those of mankind's worst enemy. End quote. And that comes from the American intellectual and writer Louis Mumford, um, I believe that quote was from the 1950s. Perhaps not as surprising of a a source as the previous two quotes, but nonetheless, food for thought. And of course, he wasn't talking about the A-bombings, but he was talking about something in many ways very similar, the incendiary bombings of Tokyo, which um, actually killed numerically more people than did either of the atomic bombings. Next one, quote, Although challenged by revisionist historians, the standard American interpretation supported by the widest segment of public opinion has been that the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki ended the war. This is simply a myth and has little relationship to historical facts. Quote. And that comes from modern-day historian Tsuyoshi Hasegawa. And one more quote I want to share with you. Indeed, about one matter, there can be little doubt, Hiroshima is an American legend. As the rationales for the atomic bombing have come under detailed historical scrutiny, and the foundations underpinning much of the original justification have begun to erode, adherence to the myth of Hiroshima has intensified among those who believe the United States acted correctly, even morally." End quote. And that comes from Lawrence Lifshultz and Kai Bird in their introduction to the collection of essays and documents that they edited, which is entitled Hiroshima's Shadow, Writings on the Denial of History and the Smithsonian Controversy. And just a few brief words about mass bombing of civilians in World War II in general. When the war started, first in Asia and then in Europe, the United States, which of course until December of 1941 was officially not a participant in the war, condemned anyone who bomb civilians. For example, in 1938, the State Department, then condemning Japanese bombings in China, issued a document that, among other things, said, quote, when the methods used in the conduct of these hostilities take the form of ruthless bombing of unfortified localities with the resultant slaughter of civilian populations, and in particular of women and children Public opinion in the United States regards such methods as barbarous. President Franklin Roosevelt, in nineteen thirty nine, as World War II was really beginning in Europe, condemned bombing of civilians in very clear language on multiple occasions such as the following quote. The ruthless bombing from the air of civilians in unfortified centers of population during the course of the hostilities which have raged in various quarters of the earth during the past few years, which has resulted in the maiming and in the deaths of thousands of defenseless men, women, and children, has sickened the hearts of every civilized man and woman and has profoundly shocked the conscience of humanity." Of course, I feel compelled to point out that just three years later, this same man would be authorizing U.S. air power to do exactly that, which he condemned so vigorously back in 1939 and also in 1940. My, how things can change in a couple of years. Not just the president, though, but many in the American military, in the American government, and also in the American media quickly changed and favored mass bombing of civilians pretty quickly once the United States was officially a belligerent in the Second World War. So, for example, in 1942, Alexander Kirilfly, in that bastion of friendly liberalism, friendly progressivism, the New Republic magazine, wrote the following, quote, The natural enemy of every American man, woman, and child is the Japanese man, woman, and child. End quote. In July of 1945, the 5th Air Force's intelligence officer said, quote, the entire population of Japan is a proper target. There are no civilians in Japan, end quote. Now, there was obviously a definite willingness to mass bomb German civilians, see Dresden and many other cases of this. But there was definitely an added element of vicious bloodthirstiness towards the japanese which can only ultimately be attributed to racism the fact that the japanese were racially ethnically much more different from the vast majority of americans than were germans after all german americans were the single largest white ethnic group in america at the time whereas japanese americans were only a tiny fraction of a percent of the overall american population and most of that was concentrated in a few west coast areas For more on this whole topic, I would recommend, above all, the work of MIT's John Dower on this, most notably his book War Without Mercy. Now, the racism was definitely a two-way street. There's no question that the Japanese had racist contempt and hatred of most of their opponents, including the Americans. But that shouldn't excuse it. You you know, the the defense of, well, they do it too— We don't let toddlers get away with that when they do something wrong. So why are we so willing to allow politicians to use that defense? High U.S. political and military people frequently and unabashedly use language such as extermination to refer to what it was they wanted to do to the Japanese during and after the war. And they often made it explicitly clear that they applied it to the whole race, not just to the Japanese military. Some documents are pretty clearly advocating genocide, government documents, things published, and again, see the works of John Dower for more uh, detail on this. Also, you can check out Neil Ferguson's work, uh, The War of the World, where he gets into a lot of this vicious two-way racism. Both the book, War of the World, and, and the movie series as well talks about this. And uh, just an interesting anecdote that I'll share with you, that um I I had this professor in graduate school who taught a class on world war ii he was an awful teacher it really takes talent to take a graduate level course on world war ii and make it excruciatingly boring but somehow this guy managed to do it i don't know how and this is even with a class full of students who are graduate students in history like you're not going to find a more friendly audience than that from the get-go but he he was just a terrible teacher but every now and then he would say something or point something out that was you know hitting the nail on the head that was a brilliant observation and one of the things i remember that he pointed out that, that i found quite interesting was uh, th- this professor by the way happened to be jewish and he when i believe we were actually discussing john dower's book in class one day and discussing this you know fact that there was a lot more vicious racist animosity by far directed against the Japanese as opposed to the Germans and he mentioned that he's noticed when he's attended synagogue looking around in the parking lot of his synagogue that there sure are a lot of German automobiles parked in the parking lot of the synagogue there's a lot of BMWs and Mercedes and what have you and he says isn't that interesting how all these Jewish people don't seem to have a problem driving a German car. By contrast, he said, and this was a guy, by the way, who did a lot of work, um, interviewing World War II veterans and, and collecting what's known as oral histories, their, their personal, you know, stories. He said, by contrast, he's met many, many veterans, especially of the Pacific theater of World War II, who to this day, and this would have been, I don't know, maybe 2005 as he was saying this, who to this day, will still never own a Toyota or any other Japanese car. Like, they won't even, even if it's rated as a good car, as a better car than the alternatives, they'd rather drive a crappier American car or, you know, car from elsewhere, uh, but they will not own a Japanese brand car to this day. So, um, in, when it comes to choice of vehicles, Jews are happy to let bygones be bygones, buy German cars, but, uh, veterans of the Pacific, no way when it comes to Toyota or Mitsubishi or what have you. Now, by the time you get into the latter stages of World War II, not only were deliberate mass bombings of civilians okayed as a sometimes you know inevitable collateral thing they were standard operating procedure to deliberately mass bomb indiscriminately known residential areas long before fat man and little boy were dropped on japan this was the norm probably the two most famous examples of this were the german city of dresden which of course was firebombed in February of 1945, killing at least 25,000 people, vast majority of them civilians, and in the process destroying a beautiful historical city that had virtually no military value. This, by the way, was an attack that Winston Churchill himself, who was one of the main people behind the operation, actually referred to in his words as a campaign of terror. But remember, it's not terrorism if a government does it. Or, especially if it's quote-unquote your government. Probably the other most famous case of firebombing of residential areas occurred in March of 1945 when the city of Tokyo was hit with tons of incendiary bombs, killing anywhere between 80 and 130,000 people, again, the vast majority of whom were civilians. And these are just a couple of the larger and more notorious cases. There are plenty of other cases of residential areas of cities being deliberately hit with basically napalm and other types of incendiary devices. It's not like they thought they were bombing an army base and oops it was an accident we hit something else. It's not like they thought they were hitting a gun factory or a tank factory and they accidentally hit the daycare across the street that kind of looks like it. Okay by the time you get especially into the last couple years of the war this which the British had been doing for a long time by the by the latter couple years of the war it was the American policy as well. And a great book to uh, blow your mind on some of this stuff is the book Human Smoke by Nichol- Nicholson Baker. I think is the guy's name. Nicholson Baker. It talks about how the British deserve at least as much, if not more blame for starting the whole thing of bombing civilians in um, mass on purpose as the Germans. Well, anyway, I won't get into too many more details of these bombings here because that's not the focus of our episode today, but I will point out how much this, you know, obviously contradicts the U.S. government statements at the start of the war and illustrates the degree to which even if you go into war with the best of intentions, even if you plan on only fighting as clean as possible and not doing horrible things, um, war has this very, very corrosive effect on everybody's morality and taboos and what they're willing to do. And it's very common that a country starts off a war saying, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, fight this one clean. We're not going to hit below the belt, so to speak, do any, anything that would be considered a war crime an atrocity, whatever. And then in very short order, um, they're doing exactly those things they said they wouldn't do. And worse, war has a corrosive de-civilizing effect. And the more intense and the longer lasting it is, the more this corrosive, decivilizing effect takes place. Well, to jump into our A-bomb story, um, I'm not going to get in the details of the Manhattan Project. That's a whole nother, you know, hours of information right there. But, um, I'll start off with July 16, 1945. This was, of course, the successful A-bomb test in Alamogordo, New Mexico, codenamed Trinity. The first successful detonation of a nuclear bomb. And upon hearing of the test and its results, President Harry Truman was delighted and then wrote in his diary, which is interesting, quote, I have told the Secretary of War, Mr. Stimson, referring to Henry Stimson, to use it so that military objectives and soldiers and sailors are the target and not women and children. Even if the Japs are savages, ruthless and fanatic, We, as the leaders of the world for the common welfare, cannot drop this terrible bomb on the old capital, meaning Kyoto, or the new, meaning Tokyo. The target will be purely a military one, end quote. That's from Harry Truman's diary. Now, in light of what ends up happening, you gotta wonder, was he just deluding himself at the the moment? And, like, literally within a matter of a few weeks, he was selecting a target that was not a purely military target, a target that did have plenty of women and children and other non-combatants present. Did he suddenly change his mind or was he perhaps writing this in his diary because he understood that posterity would be looking at his diary as an historical source? In other words, he was deliberately writing misleading, self-serving stuff in his diary in order to deceive posterity. And you got to wonder, when presidents write stuff in their diaries or write stuff in their memoirs, how often are they bullshitting you in order to somewhat cover up or maybe at least just sort of give a slanted view um, a self-serving justification for things that they may have done that would otherwise be highly questionable? Well, anyway, just two hours after the New Mexico test, a bomb left San Francisco aboard the USS Indianapolis, where it took a 10-day journey across the Pacific Ocean to the island of Tinian, which was just a six-hour B-29 flight away from the Japanese home islands. And since seizing the islands the previous year, the United States had turned the island into one of the largest air bases in the world at that time. In fact, about 500 B-29 heavy bombers were based there. Of course, many of you may know the Indianapolis, on its return journey back to the States, was torpedoed by a Japanese sub. About 300 men went down with the ship, but over 500 more men died while while awaiting rescue it took longer than usual to rescue the survivors because due to the secrecy of this mission, no distress signal was sent. And so you had, I think, something like seven, eight hundred men go into the water and 500 of them don't come out. This, of course, was commemorated by the character Quint's speech in Jaws, played by the actor Robert Shaw. By the way, the speech was largely written by the excellent hollywood writer and director john millius uh this this famous monologue in jaws where they're aboard the orca and quint is telling them all the details of the sharks coming in and yet yeah, a lot of the sailors of the indianapolis died of of drowning and whatever exposure other things but apparently lots of them were nailed by sharks so hundreds of American sailors paid the price with their lives of the degree of secrecy to which the government was determined to stick. Now, what's going on in Japan's government around this time that these things are taking place? Well, Tsuyoshi Hasegawa, in his article entitled Were the Atomic Bombings Justified?, which is a chapter in the book Bombing Civilians, a 20th Century History, says the following, quote, By June... Japan's policymakers came to the conclusion that the war was lost and that now was the time to contemplate how to end it, That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but he's basically right. In fact, by this point, the emperor himself had even abandoned his prior preference for trying to get one last big battle, which the hawks in his government were advocating. They thought that if they just put up such a defensive scrap against an American invasion, that cost the Americans a lot of lives, they'd be able to get a better bargaining position at the, at the, um, negotiating table, so to speak. They, they still, very few of them had any delusions of winning the war. They thought, well, we'll just put up one last big battle and that'll put us in a better negotiating position. But by June, even the emperor was coming away from that. Within the Japanese parliament itself, or sorry, within the cabinet, It was Prime Minister Suzuki and Foreign Minister Togo who were the ones more in favor of a negotiated peace, while the army in particular was very opposed to that. Now, the actions of the Soviet Union have at least as much, if not more, to do with Japan's eventual surrender than did the A-bombings. This is something that most Americans are Totally clueless of other than competent American historians. Most Americans are just told Japanese said they'd never surrender no matter what. America nuked two of their cities and they said, all right, we give up America. And leaves out entirely what happened regarding the Soviets. The Soviets, who up until that point in the war had had a neutrality situation towards Japan. But once Germany was defeated, the Soviets had promised they would eventually declare war on Japan, and they did. And it was There's a very strong case to be made that that was a lot more of leverage in getting the Japanese to surrender quickly than was the A-bombing of those two cities. It's true that most of the higher-ups in the Japanese government saw the war as not really winnable by the summer of 1945, and most people wanted to end it, but of course they were in a lot of dispute over exactly how and under what terms. The Japanese leadership, above all, was pretty well unanimously concerned with trying to preserve what they called the Kokutai. And forgive my pronunciations, I don't speak Japanese. The Kokutai translates as national polity. Now, the exact definition of what this means is a little bit hazy, but it definitely includes keeping the emperor in place. Like, that's the most important thing. In Japan, if you don't know, the emperor has... Not just political, but more importantly, even religious significance. And so there was a lot of concern on behalf of the entire Japanese government over trying to protect the emperor and his position. As Tsuyoshi Hasagawa puts it, the hawks and doves within the Japanese government, quote, agreed on one thing. The minimal condition for surrender should be the preservation of the kokutai. Without it, they were prepared to continue the war to the bitter end. But oddly, the policymakers never clearly defined what specific values constituted the Kokutai, end quote. But again, the, the one thing there seems to have been broad agreement on is that it did include, most importantly, the emperor himself. Now, there was a group within the Japanese leadership that initially wanted to get the USSR to mediate between Japan and the United States in order to end the war with the goal of, preserving at the very least the emperor, and preferably as much of the rest of the Japanese state as possible. And it's important to understand that the most hawkish members of the Japanese government were the military leadership, especially the leadership of the army, who also in most ways were really the most important and influential leaders within the government. As Robert Pape explains in his book, Bombing to Win, Air Power and Coercion in War, the military leadership of Japan Which was so important to any decision about surrender, the military leadership in Japan cared not at all for civilian casualties. The only thing that mattered to the military leaders of Japan was potential military vulnerability and any mortal threats to the Kokutai. The civilian and political leaders, at least some of them, did care a little bit about civilian casualties and there's evidence that the emperor himself cared at least a little bit about civilian casualties but even to the civilian leaders of japan all of the evidence indicates that while they did have some concern about civilian casualties they weren't as as you know not giving a shit about it as the military leadership was they still Even those people cared far more about the military situation and protecting the Kokutai than they did about the plight of civilians. It was not, in other words, even Japan's civilian leaders, the plight of civilians was not at the top of their list of concerns. And so this already starts to poke some holes into the notion that it was definitely and entirely the A-bombings that pressured Japan to surrender, because you're saying that a government that was a completely undemocratic, dictatorial oligarchy, was above all else concerned about civilian casualties. There, I don't give that much of a crap attitude about other Japanese cities being leveled by conventional bombs, and many things they said during and after the atomic bombings show that that wasn't their primary concern. So there was a willingness on at least some members of the Japanese government to accept some sort of negotiated surrender. Foreign Minister Togo was probably the most in, in favor of that, but uh, so was, to a lesser extent, Prime Minister Suzuki, and to some degree, so was the Emperor, even before the A-bombs were dropped. Now, in the American government, of course, FDR had died in April of 1945, just a little bit into his ridiculous fourth term, and the new president in the final stages of World War II was, of course, Harry Truman. Now, as World War II was wrapping up, Truman and many of those around him were already switching gears to seeing Stalin and the Soviet Union as the new threat. And it's really crucial to see so many of the things that the U.S. government did in the latter stages and in the aftermath of world war ii in this light such as for example operation paperclip and operation keelhaul which i covered back in dangerous history podcast episodes 50 and 51 respectively Um, check those out and this willingness to do anything to get any advantage or leverage over the soviets was in many ways a 180 from fdr's generally um conciliatory stance towards stalin and his government something for which he's often rightly criticized being too friendly to Stalin. But now, Truman is becoming so antagonistic to Stalin that it's going to cause his administration to do all sorts of morally questionable things. Truman was definitely committed to the goal of unconditional surrender on the part of Japan. Now, you would think that Russian help would seem very important and helpful to that goal, but the fact was Truman and many of his advisors didn't want Soviet occupation of the Japanese home islands. So Truman faced this dilemma, this dilemma of, I want the Japanese to surrender unconditionally as quickly as possible, but I don't want the Russians to provide help or at least provide enough help that it results in them occupying any of the Japanese home islands. How can I solve this? And so from his perspective, it would appear that the A-bomb was the magic bullet to solve this dilemma. But of course... Perhaps you could induce Japan to surrender more quickly without having to nuke anybody if you would simply make it clear to them that the emperor is going to be allowed to stay on his throne. And that's just what some people within the Truman administration were arguing. Some people, including Henry Stimson, Joseph Grew, and James Forrestal, and some other top members of the administration, wanted to change the demand for unconditional surrender in order to offer some guarantee of some type for the emperor in order to get the Japanese to surrender more quickly with fewer American casualties. And also by getting the Japanese potentially to surrender more quickly, they might also get them to surrender prior to any Soviet occupation. But Truman was unwilling to budge on, in, on unconditional surrender. And in fact, so was Stalin, it turned out. Stalin didn't want any alteration of the U.S. sticking to the demand for unconditional surrender because he wanted the war to drag on long enough for Soviet troops to start getting into Japan proper. In June of 1945, Truman approved the planning for what was codenamed Operation Olympic. This was to be an invasion of the island of Kyushu, which would be scheduled for November 1st. Army Chief of Staff George Marshall estimated that of the 190,000 troops who were planned for this operation, casualties might run as high as one-third. Now, that would include killed and wounded. Keep those sorts of estimates in mind. You hear ridiculous numbers by pro-atomic bombing people um, in the years ever since saying, ah, oh, a million Americans would have almost definitely died in an invasion of Japan. But the actual top military people at the time were giving Truman estimates that were way lower than this. Also in June, while the planning for Operation Olympic was going on, a group of nuclear physicists drafted a document known as the Frank Report, spelled F-R-A-N-C-K, and presented this to the Truman administration. In this document, they argued um, against using the A-bomb And among other things, they warned against the potential for a massive global arms race that might occur if the A-bomb was used, which, of course, was exactly what happened and and went on for decades during the Cold War. Needless to say, none of their warnings were heeded. I'll put a link in the show notes to the text of the Frank Report if you're interested and want to see it. In addition, a whole bunch of Manhattan Project scientists, I think over 150 of them, actually signed various petitions that questioned any potential use of the A-bombs. Also, like the Frank Report, though, this had no practical effect on the decisions of the Truman administration. On July 2nd, 1945, prior to, I think a few weeks prior to the Potsdam Conference of the so-called Big Three, Secretary of War Henry Stimson presented Truman with a draft for a declaration to be issued from Potsdam to the Japanese, basically like an ultimatum calling for them to surrender. This draft that Stimson presented Truman with expected the Soviets to be a part of the declaration in order to give it added oomph. And the draft also said explicitly, very, very specifically, that the Japanese would be able to have, quote, a constitutional monarchy under the present dynasty, end quote. Stimson believed that by having the Soviets definitely on board and, you know, signers of this ultimatum, and also by guaranteeing the emperor's position, this, these two things together might induce Japan to surrender quickly without any necessity for a massive invasion. So that was Stimson's initial draft for a Potsdam declaration. On July 13th, the Operation Division of the U.S. Army General Staff sent a memo to the Joint Chiefs of Staff about this whole issue, saying, quote, The primary intention in issuing the proclamation is to indu- induce Japan's surrender, and thus avoid the heavy casualties implied in a fight to the finish it is almost universally accepted that the basic point on which acceptance of surrender terms will hinge lies in the question of the disposition of the emperor and his dynasty. Therefore, from the military point of view, it seems necessary to state unequivocally what we intend to do with regard to the emperor, end quote. However, this statement of being very specific about the emperor being protected was not contained in what became the final version of the ultimatum, the final Potsdam uh, Declaration. July 16th, 1945, Harry Truman arrived at the Potsdam Conference. That evening, he received news of Trinity, the New Mexico A-bomb test, and he was apparently extremely elated about the whole thing. Now, American intelligence had cracked Japan's codes was reading their government transmissions, so would have known that the Japanese government were above all else concerned about the Emperor's fate. And of course, Truman would have been receiving this intelligence. He would have very well known that that was the number one thing they were concerned about. But prior to the issuance of, the, of what became known as the Potsdam Declaration on July 26th, Truman and his Secretary of State James Burns made two very significant changes to Stimson's original draft. First, they excluded the Soviets from any participation in the ultimatum. They wouldn't even let the Russians have the opportunity to sign it if they wanted to. Secondly, Truman and Burns dropped the part of the original draft that explicitly guaranteed the ability of the emperor to remain as a constitutional monarch. Now, after the final draft was done, Stalin and Molotov actually asked for the opportunity to sign it, and Truman flat out refused. At this point, it made it clear to Stalin what the U.S. was trying to do, that the U.S. was really trying very hard to end the war against Japan without any significant Soviet participation. So this declaration, what became known as the Potsdam Declaration, this ultimatum to Japan, was signed by Truman, Churchill, and by Chiang Kai-shek of China, but not by Stalin. Now, some Truman and A-bombing defenders claim that they were in this declaration trying to give Japan a way out to surrender in the Potsdam Declaration by only saying that they wanted unconditional surrender of, quote, the armed forces of Japan, end quote, and that this was trying to kind of leave the door open for the possibility of keeping the emperor, but they didn't say it explicitly. They said this vague thing about surrender the armed forces of Japan. They didn't do what Stimson had initially wanted to do and and make it clear. And by not including the Soviets in the declaration, they made the Japanese think it might still be possible to get the Soviets to mediate an end to the war between the U.S. and Japan. And by not being clear on the fate of the emperor, of course, they weakened the hand of those within the Japanese government who wanted peace more quickly and actually strengthened the hand politically of the more hawkish types so that was the Potsdam Declaration, and when the Japanese heard it, they did not respond to it. So plans were going ahead to carry out A-bombings. Like I said, the, the bombs themselves were already being put in place and prepared, even as the ultimatum was being issued. The decision was made to use these bombs against Japanese cities without any prior warning, even though—and this surprised me when I learned it, I didn't realize this— um, You know, until I really started reading into this subject, it was actually in the latter stages of the war against Japan, standard operating procedure to warn people ahead of time about incendiary bombings of specific cities. And there were several important people in the U.S. government who wanted to do the same with the A-bomb. For example, General George Marshall was one of those who thought there should be some sort of prior warning before you drop this thing on a city. And several others high in the U.S. government also argued in favor of this, but they were overruled. There would be no warning. Sayoshi Hasegawa writes, Because it was the general practice towards the end of the war to warn the Japanese before a firebombing, urging civilians to evacuate the cities targeted, the decision to give no warnings for the atomic bomb was meant to maximize the impact of surprise and the number of deaths. Now, as the planning was taking place, initially Kyoto was to be the target. But interestingly, Henry Stimson intervened in this and argued in this case successfully for sparing this beautiful historic city with all this cultural significance from being nuked. Interestingly, in his note to Truman on this subject, Stimson argued that the United States should not nuke Kyoto because nuking Kyoto might cause the whole world to see the U.S. as not much different from Adolf Hitler. But of course, he never argued that nuking another city that wasn't as historic and pretty might still be a humanitarian atrocity. So apparently blowing up a pretty city is Hitlerian, while blowing up a not so pretty city equals perfectly acceptable good guy behavior. Well, anyway, August 6, 1945 is when the bombing of Hiroshima took place. Colonel Paul Tibbets, who was a veteran of bombing campaigns over Germany and was the pilot of this mission, had the B-29 that was provided to him out at Tinian named Enola Gay after his mother. I'm sure she was very happy to have the plane that killed hundreds of thousands of civilians named after her, because after all, you got a bomb for Team America, Apple Pie, and Mom. Prior to their mission, the crew of the Enola Gay were supposed to be shown a film of the Alamogordo test of Trinity, but the film projector mouthed, so they didn't get to actually see the film, but they were told in detail about it by a guy who had been part of the test crew observing it there, so they did know exactly how powerful and destructive this thing would be, or at least they should have had some good idea based on this, that it would, you know, wipe out most of a city. Once the crew of the Enola Gay began to get into the vicinity of Hiroshima, they encountered no anti-aircraft resistance of any kind, and they were able to very easily drop Little Boy, a uranium bomb, over the city at about 8.15 a.m. in the morning local time. The bomb actually detonated directly over the city's main hospital. Because of where the bomb detonated most of the city's medical professionals were wiped out instantly. This made things more difficult in the aftermath, trying to take care of the maimed and and, uh, scorched survivors and everything, because the vast majority of the city's doctors and nurses had been among those instantaneously vaporized in the initial detonation. When Little Boy detonated, it caused a blinding, thousand-foot-diameter fireball. Temperatures in this area were about 4,000 degrees Celsius, not even Fahrenheit, Celsius. People left shadow outlines on the remains of walls as they were literally vaporized. Tens of thousands of people who were close to the center of the blast were instantly vaporized, just gone. A supersonic shockwave followed, which toppled many buildings and turned much of the urban landscape into deadly flying shrapnel. So there were also plenty of people who were not just vaporized in, in the immediate blast, who were then horribly, uh, wounded or killed by, you know, glass bits of buildings, all kinds of stuff just flying around willy-nilly. Some buildings in Hiroshima, however, did remain standing because this was a very earthquake-prone area, so some of the buildings were built very heavy-duty out of concrete. Now, of course, as we know, radiation was spread out far beyond the epicenter of the blast, of course, and many people who were not immediately vaporized or scorched to death or killed by flying shrapnel got massive doses of radiation survivors found themselves in a hellscape of smoke fire and rubble more than two-thirds of the city's buildings are estimated to have been destroyed now the bomb was dropped around eight fifteen a.m as you would expect of any decent-sized city at eight fifteen a.m in you know what are people doing what are they up to well they're hustling and bustling they're getting to work they're getting to school people are making their morning commute or getting ready to do so. As a result, there was all kinds of people bustling off to work, and so there were piles of bodies in the streets. You know, Had this taken place at night or something like that, it, it might not have been such a ghastly sight because fewer people would have been out strolling around on the streets, but it was done in the morning. Broad daylight, no prior uh, warning. Now, some members of the crew of the Enola Gay later expressed uh, some disturbance about, you know, what exactly they had done and the effects of their actions, while others remained for the rest of their lives unapologetic. And you can see them, you know, in, in their 70s and 80s being interviewed, saying, yeah, it was the right thing and I'm glad I did it. And, um, or you know, they were at least claiming and acting like they were unapologetic. You always have to wonder deep down, you know, how much do they really believe what they were told about what they were doing and why it was good and so on you know was it all a bluff or do they truly deep down believe that this was the right thing to do and the only thing to do now keep in mind hiroshima was one of the few major japanese cities that hadn't already been bombed into rubble with conventional or incendiary bombs There were a handful of these that had actually been specifically reserved so as to keep them in good condition for atomic bombings. In other words, Hiroshima was was one of a handful of cities that had deliberately not been hit conventionally so that the United States government would have a most useful live test of the bomb. President Truman, aboard the USS Augusta off the coast of Newfoundland, I think he was actually headed back from Potsdam at the time, was giddy with joy when he heard the news that the bombing had been successful, and he said, quote, This is the greatest thing in history, end quote. It's something that was not known to most people for many years, so, so much of what happened in the aftermath and the effects were kept secret from the American people in the world for many generations. But among the things that was kept secret for a long time was that among those killed were actually a decent amount of POWs from various allied countries, including at least 11 Americans who were in a POW camp near Hiroshima. And um, I think it wasn't until the early 1980s that the United States actually let this secret out. In the radio address, which was the same one that I excerpted at the beginning of this episode, Truman said that the bomb had been dropped, quote, on Hiroshima, a military base, end quote. Now, depending on exactly how charitable you want to be, this is somewhere between a bald-faced lie or, at the very minimum, a gross exaggeration. It makes it sound like there were almost entirely military personnel underneath where the bomb went on. It was not a military base in the sense of, like, a separate, self-contained military installation, Was Hiroshima really a military target? Well, it is true that the headquarters of some military units were located there, but at the time, most of those units were actually deployed to the island of Kyushu, and Hiroshima is on Honshu. The reason that most of the soldiers of those military units were not there is because the Japanese government had correctly... It turns out expected that the Americans, when they launched the ground invasion that everyone expected to happen, would hit Kyushu first and then move on to Honshu, which, by the way, were exactly what the American plans were. And so as a result, most of the actual people of the military units that had their headquarters at Hiroshima were not there. Now, there were some military people there for sure, but um, a relatively small percentage of the people in and around Hiroshima that day were actually members of the Japanese military. Now, it's true that there was some amount of manufacturing and distribution of military supplies in Hiroshima, as would have been the case uh, looking at almost any decent sized Japanese city at the time. And by the way, would have been the case with most American cities during the war years, too. Would that have made them legitimate targets? of had the Axis gotten the upper hand, would we have considered it militarily acceptable if they bombed a bunch of major American cities because there were, um, you know, weapons and, and war material manufacturing? But in the grand scheme of things, the amount of manufacturing and distribution of military supplies in Hiroshima was relatively minor, and there were no massive stockpiles of military supplies or anything like that. In the case of both, Hiroshima and later Nagasaki... What war manufacturing did exist in those cities was primarily located on the outskirts of the city, but the bombs were targeted at the centers of the city. So the argument that this is a primarily military target is false, and the argument that um, the main goal of bombing these cities was to take out what military manufacturing and, and facilities there were is also false because the bombs were targeted on the city centers the city of Hiroshima had over 300,000 residents at the time the bomb was dropped on it only about 40,000 of whom were actual military personnel or by my my calculations that's about 13 percent of all the people in Hiroshima were actually military 13 percent meaning 87 percent were not when the bomb was dropped Somewhere between seventy thousand and a hundred thousand people were killed very quickly. And of course many more would die later of wounds and radiation, poisoning, and so on. But somewhere between seventy and a hundred thousand people were killed, you know, within a few seconds of the detonation. And when you look at that, estimates are that at most about a quarter of those victims were actually military personnel. At most a quarter. Which again means that three quarters were not. And at least as many people were injured in those first few moments as were killed, and of course many of them died in the days, weeks, months, and even years following, suffering horribly painful deaths due to radiation exposure. And as dark as it is to point out, I think that in some ways you could definitely argue, and probably a lot of you would agree with me, that those who were instantly vaporized were the lucky ones compared to the ones who had to endure slow drawn out agonizing deaths let me put it to you this way if i'm ever the victim of a nuclear attack i want the bomb to detonate right on top of me i want it to almost hit my head before it detonates and just lights out done I would much rather be instantaneously vaporized than have to suffer for days, weeks, months, or years with horrible radiation poisoning. Now, there are countless individual human tragedy stories that have been related by survivors of this attack— Obviously, most of the people affected by the attack were not military personnel. So plenty of women, children, and elderly people were killed or maimed. Families were incinerated at the breakfast table. Workers were vaporized on their way to various blue and white-collar jobs, not all of which were actually working at munitions factories. One survivor was a young child on the day this happened, and many years later in a BBC documentary on Hiroshima, he told the story about how he and his friends were playing hide and seek on the way to school that morning, and then they made it to school. The bomb was dropped while they were in school, the school was burned and destroyed, and pretty much everybody in the school was killed except for somehow miraculously this, this one young child. And a Japanese soldier showed up from somewhere and managed to pull this boy from the burning rubble and carry him through the ruins of the city until, miraculously, they happened to run into the boy's father, and the boy was reunited with his father. Now, after the attack, as many thousands of people were lying around horribly wounded in various ways, it began to rain. But it rained black rain. The rain was black due to all the smoke and ash and things that had been sent up into the sky in that famous mushroom cloud. When the rain began to fall, it seemed at first to the victims that it was a blessing. You have all these people suffering burned wounds, and as you might imagine, many of them are horribly parched and thirsty. And so, as you might expect, many horribly thirsty victims begin drinking this water. There literally were people who were you know, grabbing cups from the rubble uh, to collect this rainwater to have something to drink because they were so thirsty. And of course, they didn't realize the black rain they were drinking was extremely radioactive and they were just further poisoning themselves by ingesting it. So that was Hiroshima. Still, the Japanese government did not make any moves to surrender. And again, Probably the main reason is their concern was not primarily with the welfare of civilians. So you have a situation where the U.S. government is attacking Japanese civilians in order to pressure the Japanese government when they should have known and did know full well that the Japanese government was not exactly a democracy and did not put the well-being of the masses of civilians of the country first. If they did, they would have quickly surrendered as soon as incendiary bombings of cities began many, many months before Hiroshima. Now, everybody then, when telling the story in the conventional America-centric way, immediately seen skips from Hiroshima to Nagasaki, and very often they skip over something else that happened the same day as the attack on Nagasaki, something which in many ways seems to have been far more important in pressuring the Japanese to surrender than was the atomic bombings of either city. And that is August 9th, 1945, the same day Nagasaki gets nuked, the the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics got into the war against Japan. Up until this point in the war, the Soviet Union had had a policy of neutrality towards Japan, and it was mutual. Now, one of the first things that the Japanese government did the day after Hiroshima was to try to contact the Soviet government to feel them out. Remember, many in the Japanese government still believed that there was a chance to get the Soviets in to mediate between Japan and the United States. Stalin responded to this request by actually speeding up his plans to begin war with Japan. Uh, By several days to August 9th, he had originally planned to go, I think, um, two or three days after that was his plan to start fighting Japan for the first time in this war. So Hazagawa writes, quote, In contrast to the atomic bombing on Hiroshima, the Soviet entry into the war prompted the Japanese policymakers into immediate action, end quote. We now know that the Japanese government didn't seriously consider the terms of the Potsdam Declaration after Hiroshima, and that the first time that they did was directly after the Soviet entry into the war. Clearly, the Japanese leadership was much more affected by Soviet entry into the war than they were by the A-bombing. But even so, they didn't surrender right away. Even so, they didn't immediately surrender after the Soviets entered the war. The reality, again, is that the Japanese government didn't care that much about their civilians being bombed from the sky. If they did, they would have probably thrown in the towel after the firebombing of Tokyo months earlier. What they cared about, above all else, not to say they didn't take civilians into account, but it was pretty far down the list of their concerns. What they cared about, above all else, was their own power, their own necks, and preserving the Kokutai, especially the Emperor. Still, there was some deadlock between top members of the Japanese government, but they did make a conditional acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, asking only for more explicit guarantees for the emperor. Now, had the United States government responded by just saying, yes, we're clearing up what we meant in the Potsdam Declaration, yes, we're guaranteeing the emperor's safety and position, that probably would have been it, and you wouldn't have had to have had you know a bunch more people still die but instead the united states government responded with the burns note which said that the emperor and the government would be subject to the supreme allied commander it didn't say what would happen to them it just said no your your fate is in the supreme allied commander's hands well again this is not clear enough and again this strengthened the hardliners within the Japanese government, and they did not immediately surrender until internal politics, including Emperor Hirohito himself, coming around to support the idea of unconditionally accepting those terms, uh, happened several days later. Now, same day as the Soviet entry into the war, August 9th, you have the bombing of Nagasaki. The same bombing crew that had done the Hiroshima mission also carried out this attack, the same plane, the Enola Gay, and this time the bomb they dropped was a plutonium bomb nicknamed Fat Man, because it was more of a large round design than Little Boy. Now, Nagasaki was an important industrial import city, to be sure. At the time, it had around 260,000 residents, less than 10,000 of whom were actual military personnel. Now, this is even smaller ratio than Hiroshima we're talking something I think in the neighborhood of three or four percent of the population of Nagasaki were actually military people. Little known fact is that Nagasaki was not the primary target of the mission that day, it was actually the secondary target. The primary target was the city of Kokura, but there was a lot of smoke from another city nearby that had been hit recently with conventional bombs, and that combined with clouds, in order to completely obscure Kokura, So, after making a couple of runs over Kokura and realizing that they were totally blind and couldn't see where they were dropping it, the crew of the Enola Gay decided to go ahead and head for Nagasaki before they run out of fuel. After all, we got this bomb, we gotta drop it on somebody. So, the Enola Gay turned and headed for Nagasaki. Just after 11 a.m., the bomb was dropped over Nagasaki. Somewhere between 20 and about 75,000 people died quickly. Only about 150 of those who were killed quickly by this bomb were actually Japanese military personnel, so it's like a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent. And several British and Dutch POWs died in this bombing as well. Death and destruction were, of course, similar to what had happened in Hiroshima. The death was a little bit less because it was a slightly smaller city, and also, I believe, some of the elements of the geography, the way the mountains and valleys were where the city was located, actually contained some of the blast from spreading as quickly as it did in Hiroshima. But destruction of buildings was even worse, because in Nagasaki, there were much fewer buildings that were made out of reinforced concrete, relative to Hiroshima. In his radio address announcing this bombing, Truman said it was basically about revenge quote, having found the bomb, we have used it. We have used it against those who have attacked us without warning at Pearl Harbor, against those who have starved and beaten and executed American prisoners of war, and against those who have abandoned all pretense of obeying international, the international law of warfare, End quote. Yeah, except that the bomb wasn't primarily used on the actual Japanese government and the Japanese military, who were the ones who had done all these things. But the bomb was actually used on non-combatants, who had actually had nothing directly to do with those things. Six-year-old Japanese schoolchildren had absolutely fuck-all to do with Pearl Harbor. They also had exactly the same amount of fuck-all to do with torturing American POWs. This is a form of collective guilt and collective punishment that would not be accepted in most other realms of activity, but is given magical sanction when it comes to state policy. On August 15th, 1945, Japan surrendered to the United States, but actually not to the Soviets yet. The Soviets actually stepped up their operations in places like Manchuria, Korea, Sakhalin, and the Kurils. And the Soviets didn't stop fighting until early September. They were trying to get as much under their control in the kind of northern part of Japan's empire as they possibly could. And again, there's just overwhelming documentary evidence from inside the Japanese government that the Soviet entry into the war had a much bigger effect on changing their minds to surrender than did the A-bombs, including the mind of the emperor himself. There's a lot of evidence to indicate that the Soviet, the potential for a Soviet invasion of Japanese home islands was far more concerning to them than civilians getting incinerated. Those high up in the Japanese government knew that Soviet occupation would pretty much definitely entail the end of the monarchy and whatever else you wanted to define as the Kokutai for sure, they knew it. That was a given. On the other hand, they knew that the U.S. occupation might do those things, but also might not. So basically, they decided to gamble on surrendering to the United States and have a chance of the Kokutai being left in place because the only other option was to invite certain ending of the Kokutai. If the war on the ground. Uh, were to continue and the soviets were to occupy any of the japanese homeland again if the mass destruction of civilians and cities had been the deciding factor in the japanese government's choice to finally surrender they would have done so months earlier when most of the other major cities started getting destroyed with incendiary bombs numerically more people died in the incendiary bombing of tokyo than died in hiroshima and nagasaki and that didn't cause them to surrender Well, anyway, once the Japanese surrendered to the United States, United States General Douglas MacArthur was placed in charge of the U.S. occupation of Japan as Supreme Allied Commander in the Pacific. The official surrender documents, which were signed in September of 1945, explicitly put the question of the fate of the Emperor into the hands of the Allied Commander. And interestingly, MacArthur decided to let Hirohito stay on the throne in order to get a Japanese government up and running that would be seen as legitimate in the eyes of the people, even though, of course, this government was for many years a total sock puppet of the United States, and one could argue is still to a large degree such today, though perhaps not as blatantly as it was in the decades immediately after the war. Interestingly, in between the bombing of Hiroshima and the bombing of Nagasaki. The governments of the United States, the UK, France, and the USSR signed something called the London Agreement on Prosecution of War Crimes, Article 2B of which defined war crimes to include "wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages or devastation not justified by military necessity." End quote. Now that last clause was the get out of jail free card for the allies. Again, defined war crimes as including wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages, or devastation not justified by military necessity. End quote. This was the allies out it They gave themselves this out so that they wouldn't be liable to prosecution for any of their bombings because they would just use the it was militarily necessary. As their magical jail free card, anything anyone raised saying, hey, this American bombing of this city over here, this British bombing or what have you, is uh, an atrocity, a war crime by the same definitions you're putting on the, the Axis powers. And they could just say no, because that was militarily necessary. So, no, this was how they gave Victor's justice the veneer of legitimacy and legality. By the way, this agreement nullified the earlier Hague Agreement of 1907, which had just completely forbidden all bombing of civilians from the air outright. This now says, no, if it's deemed militarily necessary, it's cool. Opinion polls taken in 1945 indicate that about 80% of Americans supported the A-bombing at the time. But of course... These were not people who were even remotely privy to all of the information, the entire story of what was going on behind the scenes. They didn't have much facts about all the horrendous death and destruction. They didn't have the facts about radiation and its long-lasting effects. They didn't have all the facts about the Japanese government's willingness to surrender if only the emperor was explicitly uh, guaranteed to be, you know, protected. This is also a population that in 1945 had been whipped up by years of unrelenting war propaganda. It was all, it was everywhere. It was pervasive. Even Looney Tunes were in on the act. I'll try to remember to put in the show notes for this episode at profcj.org a clip, and you could dig up others as well, a clip from Looney Tunes film shown during World War II that is completely, you know, racist and dehumanizing of the Japanese. And there are even, to a lesser extent, ones about the Germans and Italians as well. But when Bugs Bunny is in on the war propaganda, you know it's pretty frickin' pervasive. A more significant proportion of the men who actually did have the inside scoop at the time were actually against the atomic bombings. In addition to General Eisenhower and Admiral Leahy mentioned at the start of this episode— um, some of the others who were opposed to this atomic bombing included Admiral Chester Nimitz and General Douglas MacArthur, of all people. Now, there were some Americans at the time who were not part of the power elite, who were not insiders, who nonetheless courageously expressed condemnation and regret about these bombings shortly after they occurred. This is at a time, I mean, again, 80% of Americans thought this was the greatest thing ever, dropping this bomb. It takes a lot of huevos to, in that context, publicly take a stand and say, no, this is wrong. I don't care what the Japanese did that was bad. That doesn't justify doing horrible things um, ourselves. Among those who were bravely criticizing this in the immediate aftermath of it were many of the country's most respected theologians, including many mainstream Catholic and Protestant leaders. For example, the Federal Council of Churches quickly produced a very critical report signed by 22 leading American theologians objecting to this bombing. And I'm going to read you an excerpt of what they said. It's so interesting. Used to be in this country that the more devoutly Christian you were, the more likely you were to be skeptical of war and my how it's gone reverse, at least as far as, like, mainstream Christians in America are concerned. Now the followers of the Prince of Peace are among some of the most diehard warmongers, but wasn't always so. By the way, you can check out, for some more examples of devoutly Christian anti-war writing in American history, check out We Who Dared to Say No to War, edited by Tom Woods and Murray Polner. Great book. So the Federal Council of Churches, published the following after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Quote, we would begin with an act of contrition. As American Christians, we are deeply penitent for the irresponsible use already made of the atomic bomb. We are agreed that whatever be one's judgment of the ethics of war in principle, the surprise bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are morally indefensible. They repeated, in a ghastly form, the indiscriminate slaughter of non-combatants that has become familiar during World War II. They were loosed, without specific warning, under conditions which virtually assured the deaths of a 100,000 civilians. No word of the existence of atomic bombs was published before the actual blasting of Hiroshima. The peoples whose governments controlled the bomb were given no chance to weigh beforehand the moral and political consequences of its use. Nagasaki was bombed also without specific warning after the power of the bomb had been proved, but before the Japanese government and high command had been given reasonable time to reach a decision to surrender. Both bombings, moreover, must be judged to have been unnecessary for winning the war. Japan's strategic position was already hopeless, and it was virtually certain that she had not developed atomic weapons of her own. Even though use of the new weapon last August may well have shortened the war, the moral cost was too high. As the power that first used the atomic bomb under those circumstances, we have sinned grievously against the laws of God and against the people of Japan. Without seeking to apportion blame among individuals, we are compelled to judge our chosen course inexcusable. In light of present knowledge, we are prepared to affirm that the policy of obliterate, obliteration bombing, as actually practiced in World War II, culminating in the use of atomic bombs against Japan, is not defensible on Christian premises, end quote. And the Catholic journal Commonweal, which I believe William F. Buckley actually wrote for a bit in the early 50s before he founded the National Review—William uh, F. Buckley noted Warmonger, of course— Um, At the time, the Commonweal magazine was not Buckleyite, and they carried an article just two weeks after the bombing that said the following, The name Pearl Harbor was a name for Japanese guilt and shame. The name Hiroshima, the name Nagasaki, are names for American guilt and shame. We said, the time has come when nothing more can be added to the horror if we wish to keep our coming victory something we can use or that humanity can use well it seems that we were ridiculous writing that sort of thing we will not have to write that sort of thing anymore certainly like everyone else we will have to write a great deal about the future of humanity and the atomic bomb but we will not have to worry any more about keeping our victory clean it is defiled, end quote. More recently done opinion polls still show that a majority of Americans support the decision to drop those atomic bombs, but the margin is much less overwhelming than it was in 1945. I think it typically gets in the mid to high 50 percent in favor rather than 80 percent. And interestingly, though of course not surprisingly, the older the respondent is, the more likely they are to support the bombing, and vice versa. The younger the respondent, the more likely they are to not, which is at least a hopeful sign. In the years after the bombings, the United States government was very, heavy-handed with censorship regarding photos films and documents about these bombings and prevented the american people from really knowing just how bad they were and just how badly even those who survived suffered photos that showed piles of dead and maimed were kept from the american people for decades in some cases and they even censored news stories that talked at all about radiation poisoning so It's a lot easier for the American people to support this bombing if all you ever see is a distant mushroom cloud. It's an abstraction. It looks like a clean operation. When you see piles of charred bodies, many of them pint-sized, it looks a little different. And the same thing when you see the horrible wounds of survivors up close. And some of the links I'm going to put in the show notes page for this episode are going to link to some of those things. If you're curious, some of it's not for the squeamish. When you look at the truth, it looks a lot different and you understand why the state would not want the people to know what it really looks like when you look at the human beings that were the victims of this. Because if you look at that, you're a lot more likely to have a little something called empathy and to go, you know, I don't care what atrocities some Japanese soldiers might have done. This is fucking wrong. I think that supporters of the A-bombing have kind of three main arguments, and they'll do the usual thing of when you disprove one, they'll just, like, move the target to the other sort of a thing. There's the one of the bombing was absolutely necessary to get Japan to surrender without there being massive loss of life. Secondly, there's, and also related to the first one, there's the argument that the bombing sped up the Japanese surrender. Nobody argues that the Japanese wouldn't have surrendered. Everybody acknowledges they were, you know, beaten at that point. It was just a matter of time. But they'll say, well, it sped up the surrender. So, you know, it's it's worth it. And then the third main one that I've encountered from pro-bombing people are that the bombing was morally justified because of Pearl Harbor and or the treatment of U.S. and allied POWs, the old revenge, eye for an eye kind of an argument. Now, just I'll just say a few things in rebuttal to these arguments, and a lot of them you probably already have an idea what I'd say based on what we've covered so far. But in rebuttal to the first argument, that it was necessary to get Japan to surrender without a massive loss of life, I will say this, people using this argument often drastically overestimate the casualties of a ground invasion as being one or several million. And those numbers were dreamed up, in many cases long after the fact, by people who were writing their memoirs or who were speaking to the press, who were in one way or another um, wrapped up in the decision to drop the bomb. In reality, actual estimates of American casualties who were given by the military commanders at the time were much more modest. They were, you know, twenty, forty thousand, 40,000 maybe to take Kyushu, and then a bit more than that to take Honshu. Now, that's bad, but that's a fraction of the millions that are often quoted by A-bombing defenders. So the reality is, even had the ground invasion taken place, the actual generals at the time, people like George Marshall, were quoting figures that were way below the million or two million or whatever that are often trotted out today and besides which of course as we've seen there was high likelihood that there were other ways to pressure japan into surrendering short of a ground invasion or dropping the the bomb Now, as to the second argument that the bombing sped up the Japanese surrender, I think there's a case to be made that the A-bombings did, in fact, speed up the surrender. But, of course, again, other alternatives weren't tried, such as, for example, sticking with Stimson's original draft of the Potsdam Declaration, explicitly guaranteeing the Emperor and also getting the Soviets on board to add pressure. That might have, might, you know, we don't know for sure, but that might have pressured the Japanese to surrender Um, Around the same time that they did without having to nuke two cities full of people. Then you've got the question of let's face it, how many human beings getting vaporized or horribly burned is acceptable in order to speed up something that was already a foregone inevitability at the time? And in addition to that, I will say this to anyone who says that speeding up the conclusion of a war justifies anything might otherwise be considered an atrocity. They, they make this ends justify the means. Well, yeah, it was some nasty stuff that was done, but it was to speed up the war. Let me point this out. If you argue that, you are speaking and thinking just like some of the most horrific conquerors of centuries past, such as most notably the Mongols, okay? The Mongols carried out horrific massacres and atrocities against millions of people, horrible slaughters and tortures and just, I mean, nasty stuff. The way they justified it to themselves and to posterity, the Mongol leaders said it it this way, By doing horrible things in our conquests, we are going to induce future potential resistors to surrender quickly in the face of you know our conquest. So in other words, we're actually, the Mongols, if they were putting it in modern day US government speak, the Mongols would have said, hey, listen, it's true, we mass slaughtered X number of people, but we did it so that the wars would be over quicker. Isn't that the merciful thing to do? And if we hadn't, and more of the cities and, and countries we were conquering had actually fought back, that would have just been worse. So in reality, mass slaughters and atrocities are actually the lesser of two evils. That's the kind of thinking you're endorsing when you make the argument that doing horrible things is justified in order to bring about a quicker termination of a war. You're arguing basically along the same lines as Genghis Khan. And once you go down that road, I don't think there's any end to the brutality that you might find yourself endorsing for the goal of shortening a war. And that idea, that tactic, is psychological warfare. It's the idea of using pure terror to achieve political objectives. Of course, when non-state groups do this, it's called terrorism, and it's condemned as one of the most evil things in the world. But when states do it, especially if it's your state or a state that you happen to like— like, for example, the way many Americans feel about the British state or the Israeli state, if it's your state or another state that you like, then it's considered wise strategy to use psychological warfare, not evil terrorism. Isn't that interesting? Now, as to the third argument that the bombing was morally justified because of Pearl Harbor and other horrible things that the Japanese uh, military had done, the Japanese state had done, I'll say the following. This only makes sense If you completely buy into collectivist ethics and ideas related to that of things like collective punishment, something that very few of us buy into on a micro level, but somehow we put it when it's done by a state, we put it in a totally different moral category for some magical reason. So, for example, if your neighbor across the street from you does some wrong to you and you take revenge on another neighbor who lives down the block who's related to the neighbor who wronged you, but who themselves have done nothing wrong to you personally, what would we say about that? Would we say that's okay? You know, if my neighbor across the street does something, I don't know, hurts me, takes my stuff or whatever, and I actually go down the road to his cousin, who's also in my neighborhood, and do something horrible to him, even though that guy did nothing to me, would any of us say in in regular interpersonal relations, like, oh yeah, that's cool, you were taking care of business and, and making things right? No, we'd say that's stupid and psychotic and whatever else. But by trying to avenge the wrongs done by the Japanese government and the Japanese military, by incinerating piles of civilians, including even children... Isn't that doing the same thing, but on a far larger and nastier and and much worse scale? Japanese civilians, especially including children, did not carry out the Pearl Harbor attack or commit any atrocities against Allied POWs. Soldiers acting on behalf of the Japanese government did. And as we saw, only a small percentage of the atomic bomb victims were actually members of the Japanese military or the Japanese government. And yes, it's true that many Japanese civilians probably cheered on and otherwise supported the troops of their country. But remember, these are people born and raised in that regime. They are no different than you would be if you had been born and raised in that same society and under that same regime yourself. So if you want to nuke people for having been successfully brainwashed when you are just as vulnerable to those things, given different circumstances, if you were in their shoes, uh, this to me seems morally and logically absurd. Then there's the question of a complete lack of proportionality. When you look at the numbers of Americans killed at Pearl Harbor and killed by Japanese atrocities during the war, these are horrible things, and I'm not excusing them. But when you just look at the numbers, these are quite small compared to the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians killed by American bombings, not just the atomic bombings, but the incendiary bombings. It's way out of proportion. And this brings up, you know, does the United States government have a long history of retaliation far out of proportion to the wrong that was done in the first place? And I don't think this is uniquely American. I think this is a tendency of very powerful states who can get away with stuff. It just so happens that in the last you know, century or so, the U.S. government has been the most powerful state. And so they've had a lot more opportunity in recent history to engage in this sort of like wildly not proportional retaliation to any wrong or even perceived wrong. This even, to me at least, calls to mind 9-11. Compare the casualties of 9-11 to the numbers of civilians killed as a result of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere in places like Yemen and Pakistan, which followed. And again, it's wildly out of proportion. Wildly out of proportion. By the way, U.S. casualties in the Pearl Harbor attack were about 2,400 killed and half as many as that wounded. But... Only 68 of those killed and only 35 of those wounded at Pearl Harbor were actually civilians. In other words, over 95% of Pearl Harbor casualties were actually military personnel. And again, I'm not saying that that makes Pearl Harbor attack okay and that I'm in favor of that or anything like that. I'm, I'm against anybody blowing up anybody. My point is that the Japanese actually did hit a military target that was overwhelmingly a military target, and did kill overwhelmingly military personnel. Whereas the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you can't say that about. As Lawrence lifshultz and Kai Bird put it in Hiroshima's Shadow in their introduction to that book, quote, the war between Japan and the United States opened with a surprise attack on an American military installation, but it would end with an atomic attack by the United States against two civilian population centers. End quote. So if the atomic bombings were not really a requirement for ending the war, if there were other possible ways potentially to do it that were available and that were discussed and advocated by some individuals within the U.S. government at the time, then you have to ask, why did Truman and the other supporters of dropping those bombs decide to do it? And I think we can speculate. We can speculate based on logic and evidence, but it's still, you know, we can't read someone's mind from 70 years ago. But I think these are some of the main things that were influencing those people to want to drop the bomb, even though there was some evidence that there were other alternatives to try. I think a big part of it was to reconcile goals that were otherwise seemingly contradictory or exclusive of each other. Trying to, let's let's put them all together, okay? The goals were to get Japan to accept completely unconditional surrender. So that U.S. leaders would look tough and consistent and, you know, in in line with their earlier statements that that's what they wanted and, and, you know, show that they're tough and kicking ass and whatever. That's one goal to try to do this without an American ground invasion, but also to accomplish those two goals while trying to block the Soviets out of any occupation of the Japanese home islands. How do you get all those things reconciled? How do you get Japan to accept completely unconditional surrender with no American ground invasion and also without the Soviets participating enough to get all the way into Japan proper? How do you do this? Well, the atomic bomb seemed to offer a... Solution to that in the eyes of a lot of the people who supported dropping it. And again, this is with a very, very blind eye, um, most likely, I think, willingly a blind eye to the fact that, as we've said repeatedly so far, the Japanese government would not give a huge crap about civilian deaths. Hundreds of thousands had already been killed by incendiary bombs without any surrender. So the U.S. government is trying to put pressure on the Japanese government using a means which they knew would not be very effective at pressuring the Japanese government. This is not a democracy. And they should have known, I mean, America's own propaganda, one of the few things that's true in American propaganda about Japan during the war is that Japan was a very undemocratic government at the time. It's a very authoritarian, oligarchical regime. So on the one hand, American propaganda is telling everybody, and it's one of the few true things they're saying, hey, the Japanese government doesn't give a crap about their people. And then the U.S. government is saying, you know how to pressure the Japanese government to give up? Kill their people. So as contradictory as that thinking is, I think it's what was going on in the minds of many of those, probably including Truman, who supported dropping the bombs. Now, other motivations, I think also just revenge, right? Oh, get them back for Pearl Harbor and all this stuff. Also, I think, and this is sort of like a, a bureaucratic thing that goes on a lot and, um, you know, sort of banality of evil stuff causes people to endorse things that they normally probably wouldn't. But you've got a situation where so much money and resources had been invested in the bomb that I think there was a feeling on the part of many people in the hierarchy that you had to use it at least once just because, right? Just because we spent so much on it. We got to come on, man. We got this new toy. We got to try it at least once. And also, I don't think this should be underestimated either. There was the feeling among many that a live fire demonstration on real human beings, a demonstration of the destructive capability of the bomb to the world, especially to our, at the time, supposedly still great allies, the Ruskies, that everybody behind the scenes in in the higher levels of the administration were already saying are the new evil, give them a demonstration of, hey, look what Team Merka can do because at the time, the conventional forces of the Soviet Union were much numerically larger than the uh, British and American forces. And so the idea is to have this potential ace up the sleeve to deal with the Soviets in the years after the war, which is exactly what happened until, uh, I believe it was 1945, the Soviets had the A-bomb too. So for for a whopping four years, Team America had a A A-bomb monopoly. So you know, incinerate as many people as you need to in order to give a demonstration to the Russians of how powerful your weapon is. I think those are some of the real reasons that the bomb was dropped, but hey, please feel free to make up your own mind. In the mid-1990s, as the 50th anniversary of the bombings approached, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. was putting together an exhibit on the bombings that actually featured the Enola Gay, and this exhibition the way it was being designed was trying to at least raise the other side of the bombing the con side the critical side and it apparently committed the mortal faux pas of <gasps> actually mentioning the victims and the human costs of the bombing and it wasn't even like aggressively taking that side from what i understand it was just sort of pointing out like hey there were people down there and it was really bad for those people while well, this is an unforgivable faux pas to the American official narrative, this is too unpolitically correct. And the Smithsonian was viciously attacked by groups such as the American Legion, the Air Force Association, and much of the mainstream media, not just right wing radio hosts, either a lot of the supposedly left wing mainstream media people, they were attacked the Smithsonian for basically being America hating evil loving assholes for even bringing up the other side of the question, even bringing up the, the topic of the human cause. The director of the Air and Space Museum was actually forced to resign over this, and the exhibit was quickly changed so that it just gave very bland, cut-and-dry sort of technical data about the Enola Gay. George Will, the columnist, accused revisionist historians who raised any questions about the bombings to be people who, quote, obviously hate this country, end quote. David Brinkley of ABC News said, quote, "What I don't understand is why a very strong element in the academic community seems to hate its own country and never passes up a chance to be critical of it." End quote. And Cokie Roberts, also of ABC, said that quote, "To rewrite history makes no sense." End quote. This is what these idiots said about even just mentioning part of the truth even just bringing in, hey, whether you're in favor of the bombing or not, we're going to at least mention that there were people down there that it fell on. Yes, heaven forbid anyone ever questions the official narrative of the establishment about anything important. We've got to stop that out. We've got to take care of that 1984 style. Crime stop, baby. Crime stop. As Lawrence Liffshultz and Kai Bird put it, quote, By depicting the curators and historians as arrogant intellectuals bent on inflicting a narrow-minded, politically correct version of history on the American people, the Air Force Association's public relations men discovered that they were able to ignite a storm of resentment against the Smithsonian. A new caricature was created to serve this purpose." The museum's curators, revisionist historians, and intellectuals in general became targets, and the Smithsonian was turned into another battlefield in the country's ongoing culture wars. End quote. And very few people objected or fought back in any way in the public eye. One of the few was actually the Organization of American Historians, a group of which I'm not normally that much of a fan, but I'll give anybody credit when they are right and take a stand about something. And so, as Schultz and Kai Bird say about this, quote, "...the Organization of American Historians issued a statement condemning the Smithsonian's actions," meaning their actions in changing the exhibit. "...but otherwise, objections from the American intelligentsia were rather muted." No major literary or artistic figure protested the polishing of the Hiroshima legend with the dirty rag of censorship. End quote. Now, the Cold War alliance for many years hid and muted Japanese anger and resentment over the bombings, but it never really went away. And ever since the Cold War ended, it's been popping up a little bit here and there uh, more frequently. So, for example, in 2007, Japanese defense minister. Kiyuma Fumio said the A-bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were totally justified because they prevented the USSR from occupying Japan, so they were actually a good thing, he was saying. Well, the Japanese political hierarchy um, came after him for defending the A-bombing, and he was soon forced to resign, and he was replaced by a new defense minister who basically said that nothing justified those A-bombings. Asked about the whole subject soon after this took place, Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo said, quote, I have not changed my view that we should never forgive the atomic bombings. End quote. Here's an interesting thought experiment. Suppose that one of the Axis powers had gotten the A bomb first and used it. Suppose the Germans had dropped a couple of A bombs on a couple of Allied cities in an attempt to end the war more quickly and minimize casualties. How would Americans at the time and how would Americans today view that if the Germans had done it? Or what if the Japanese had done the same thing for the same reasons? What if the Japanese had built A-bombs and had dropped them on a couple of American cities or a couple of Chinese cities or what have you? And they had said very piously in public, oh, this is to save lives because it's going to end the war more quickly. Would any American at the time have said, well, that makes sense. They're actually saving lives. So it's actually um, a good thing on, on the whole. Would any Americans today think that? And one of the links I'll put in the show notes is to um, Daniel Ellsberg, the heroic liberator of the Pentagon Papers, talking about the subject where he says something very similar. And just to wrap up, I will leave you with this to think about. How many innocent children are you willing to burn to death to achieve a political objective? I don't know about you, but for me... The answer is an emphatic zero. Thanks for listening. I very much appreciate it and hope I haven't wasted your time. As I said at the beginning, this is not a happy subject. This is a dark subject. And maybe you can understand after hearing the episode why it took me a long time to put this together, because it was just for a long time. I I couldn't I couldn't work on this as quickly as I normally work on things. It was just too tough, but I hope it's worth it. And like I always say, sometimes the truths that are uncomfortable are the most important truths to come to grips with. Remember to check out my website, profcj.org. There's always show notes and and usually a lot of links and things to things related to what I've talked about in an episode. And this episode in particular is going to have a lot of links to various supplemental materials. Any questions or comments related to this episode, please feel free to place them in Uh, in the page for this episode at my website remember also questions comments about anything related to this uh, podcast or any subjects that have any tangential relationship to this please feel free to email me my email address is p-r-o-f-c-j at p-r-o-f-c-j dot o-r-g there are lots of ways that you can follow the show one is you can email subscribe to the show putting your email address Um, in the little email subscribe thing in the sidebar of my website. And if you do that, you won't get any junk or spam or whatever. All that'll happen is you'll get an email every time I post something new to the website, which might be a new episode, might be uh, some other sort of announcement or what have you. You can also connect with and and, uh, follow the show on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher as well. There are lots of ways you can support the show if you appreciate it and want to see it continue and want to see it continue to improve, you can spread the word any way you can, online or word of mouth or what have you. I appreciate that very much. Also, please consider leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And I always can use and very much appreciate any amount of financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of ways there that you can help out the show. You can, as I said at the beginning, support the show through Patreon. That's something relatively new I've set up. You can pledge to donate a certain amount of money per episode that I come out with. And like I said, if you do that, you're going to be able to get access to some of the occasional bonus episodes I'm going to start putting out there. You can also set up either one-time or recurring donations through PayPal. Um, but of course, that won't give you access to any extra things on Patreon. So, you know, perhaps you'd rather subscribe through Patreon to get those extra episodes and then... Maybe use PayPal for any additional donations, you know, if you want to send an extra few bucks my way every now and then. Um, Or if you just want to send me, you know, you got $100,000 lying around and don't know what to do with it and you already have a a bunch of money, you you can send me that, you know, through PayPal as well. That's fine. You can also donate Bitcoin to the show. I have a Bitcoin address on the donate page. You can do that if you prefer. And remember, you can also help out the show financially by buying things from Amazon.com. Doesn't matter if they're the things I actually list in the show notes or whatever, um, just go through any of my Amazon links on my website. Those are affiliate links. Go through them, purchase anything from amazon.com by going through those links. I get a small um, percentage kickback from Amazon that doesn't cost you anything extra. So another way to support the show. As always, thank you very much to all of the, the donors, the patrons, and those who shop from Amazon through my affiliate links. I very much appreciate it. I can use all the help I can get to keep the show going and growing. Again, please, if you haven't already, or even if you have and you have the ability to help out more, please consider helping out the show any way you can. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.